0: Besides being a part of the Steph and Steph duo, I'm also one of the pastors here. And we're so glad that you're here with us and um, that you're worshiping with us this morning. We're in the second week of a conversation called Reconnect with God, or just straight up connect with God, because we don't want to assume that everybody's disconnected. But sometimes in our lives, all of us are at different points. And so today what I want to talk about is uh, this concept of reconnect with God. And it's important as we're looking over these next few weeks um, it's important for us to have this conversation because if you've been around Mill City for a little while, you'll notice pretty quickly that we're a pretty action-oriented church. We like to take action. We like to talk about taking action. And for us, uh, I mean, this last few we- few months, we've talked about race. Before that, we were talking about engaging what God is doing and joining God in your, in your workplace. And before that, we were talking about joining God in your neighborhood. And all of that is about this action of joining God. And we're constantly asking this question, what is God saying to us? What is God doing, and how are we going to join in, or how are we going to respond? What is God saying, and what am I going to do about it? And if we're going to ask those two questions, then you realize how all the action, all the things that we're doing to step into our mission, to love our community in the name of Jesus, relies on a connection with God, relies on us consistently pursuing a deeper connection with this God that we're joining in the world. Our mission, as you saw, is to love our community in the name of Jesus. And that is our why. That's why we do what we do. But it's also the how. We're joining Jesus. We're joining God's work in the world all around us in our everyday spaces where you live, where you work, where you play, where you learn. We're joining God, and that's what makes this so important. So in a lot of ways, everything we do to live out our mission hinges on the deepening of our connection with God. And so today I want to talk about something that I would suggest is one of the biggest barriers when it comes to joining God. It's one of the biggest barriers when it comes to being connected with God. In my experience, one of those huge barriers is doubt. Doubt and uncertainty, confusion about who God is, questions for God. This can be a huge barrier when it comes to connecting with God. So that's what I want to talk about today. Let's pray before we look into God's word together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for the promise of your presence in this place. God, we pray that you would be encountering each of us, that this would be a place where we can connect with who you are this morning. We believe that you are able to to be with us in our everyday spaces, but we've come here, we've set this time apart to pursue you, to bring to you some of our questions, To come to you, to worship you, but also to learn from you. So God, we pray that you would be teaching us this morning. And God, we thank you for the opportunity to be here in this school. We pray for your blessing upon Sheridan School, God. We pray that you would be with the teachers, the the staff, the faculty, but also the students and their families as we look towards the holiday season. God, we pray that there would be provision for them, that they would have what they need. And God, that your presence in this school would make a difference, not only as we worship you this morning, but throughout this entire week. We thank you and we love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So a couple months ago, the, the Steph and Steph duo went rock climbing, indoor rock climbing, and it was like, the, I think, the first time I've been indoor rock climbing. Has anybody been rock climbing indoors? Oh, Wow, a lot of you have. Has anybody climbed actual rocks? Okay, less of us because we're in the Midwest. But we were out on the West Coast and we went to this big climbing gym, like some of them that they have here. But we were on the West Coast. So some of the other people there had climbed actual mountains, like probably a lot, because we were by actual mountains. And so we're in this climbing gym. We're learning for the first time. They're teaching us how to like, you know, not drop our friends with the belay and all that stuff. And there's people just climbing all over these walls like they're like Spider-Man or Spider-Woman, like it's no big deal. They're just like flying across these walls, right? It was crazy. And we're kind of, like, getting our gear on, like, that's going to be us. Like, we're going to climb. And so uh, show this picture. You can see this picture of me. That's me. The first time I got to the top of one of the, the, rock, the, the rock walls, and I was so pumped. That's my look-at-me-mom face. My mom's here. Look at me, mom. Yeah, I climbed all the way up there, and I was so proud of myself. I was like, look, I've never done this before, but I made it to the top. And I was, you know, looking around. Maybe someone would notice at my picture, which they did. But this picture actually is a little bit deceiving because it doesn't, at first glance, it doesn't show everything. And, and one of the things you can't see unless you pay attention to it, put that next slide up, um, is that my feet are on these little red pegs, okay? And on the left, so I don't know anything about this, but if you've done this a lot, apparently the, the little fake rocks, the little plastic fake rocks, are color-coded based on how difficult the climb is, all right? I didn't know that. So I'm up at the top of this thing. I'm on the red pegs. Turns out that's the easiest. So I'm up at the top thinking that I am like a boss. And turns out it's because I was on like the the little red pegs that they reserve for the little kids as they're learning how to climb, okay? So uh, what I didn't realize after I, you know, rappelled down was that the next level up and the next level up got harder and harder and harder. And as it's getting harder, I just, I actually just can't do it. Like I legitimately can't do it. So by the time we get to the middle levels, I, I can't even make it up half the wall. And by then, um, all these little muscles in my arms and my fingers are starting to hurt. I didn't even know I had those muscles. And they're starting to, like, quiver, right? And so we get to the point where um, I think we had, like, an hour left to climb still. And I look at other Steph, and I'm like, dude, and I can tell that her mystery muscles are hurting, too. And I'm like, we got to bail. Like, we got to go now. So we act like we had somewhere to go, and we left, with an hour left on our climb that somebody else paid for, for us to do that. We were like, we're out of here. I tell you this story because I think about this experience and I think that how there's so many times in our faith where it's like this, like we're having a good time, we're climbing around, we're learning things, we're growing, we're taking like rock climbing selfies, metaphorically speaking, and we're really enjoying ourselves, And then we hit this wall that is way out of our league. We hit this wall that there is just no way that we can scale it. We do not have what it takes to make it to the top. It's not going to happen. And many of us in our relationship with God and our understanding of our faith, we hit this wall that we can't go over. We can't go around. We can't go under it. We have to go through it. And we experience in this wall-like experience doubt and uncertainty and fear and questions and confusion and the hard thing is, is that everyone else around us seems to be doing just fine going up and down the wall. No big deal, spidey sense. Like, it's not a big deal. And we're feeling this overwhelming sense that this wall is not something we're going to be able to face in the ways that we have faced it before. When we hit this wall, some people have called it a dark night of the soul. That's what an experience of hitting that wall feels like. Uh, a Spanish mystic named St. John of the Cross called penned that name, the the dark night of the soul in the 1500s. And a lot of people have described hitting the wall as something that feels like a dark night of the soul. And I'll be honest and say that I have hit that kind of wall in my life multiple times in my faith. That wall of doubt or confusion or questions that felt huge in my life. So just if you're willing, and you totally don't have to if you don't want to, but I think just to, to normalize that reality, if you're willing to say I've hit a wall of doubt and questions in my life. Would you raise your hand? Okay, so I'm not alone. Thank you for raising your hand. Um, At times, it feels hesitant, I think, in spaces like this to admit that. And I wouldn't think that's weird because in many spaces, in um, community spaces, communities of faith, people have been told either directly or indirectly that doubt or questioning is wrong. At times, people even say that it's a sin. Like, that's a huge statement. A recent study by the Barna Group proved that there's this pervasive view by many people and more and more people that the church is not a safe place for people who doubt. People shared that they didn't feel safe to question. They didn't feel safe to sometimes say, I just don't know if Christianity is making sense to me right now. They felt like it was not something that they could admit. So. When it comes to uh, encountering Christians or churches or the church and this idea that uh, doubt is something that is, makes you a lesser Christian or doubt is something that's a sin, who has heard that kind of sentiment before? A few people. So this, this according to this study, is growing, this awareness and this, this question. And I think it's fascinating how many people think that because I would suggest that the opposite is true. When it comes to doubt, I want to say three things as a kind of foundation of where we're going to go today. The first thing I would say is that doubt is normal. It's actually something that I would use the word most. Most Christians will experience doubt in their life. I know I have. And even people that are considered famous Christians, whether that's people in scripture or even like recent famous Christians like Mother Teresa, um, I think of people like C.S. Lewis, even Pope Francis, that's like the really popular pope on Twitter these days, These are people who have been very forthright and shared that they've experienced seasons of doubt and and hitting this kind of wall in their life. So first, doubt is normal. Second, doubt is not a sin. I would say that if somebody expresses that they think the Bible is suggesting that doubt is a sin, in my opinion, I'm going to talk about this a little bit today, I think that's a pretty clear misreading of this text. Um, And actually one specific text that we'll talk about in a little bit. And then third, I think that doubt can mature your faith. Studies actually show that doubt and uncertainty is linked to those who end up having the most mature understanding of their faith overall in life. This is a reality. So I'm going to pose the question, could it even be a gift in our lives to have these seasons of doubt and questioning? So I want to talk about these realities today. And I want us to look at two places in the Bible. Um, Every single week in this conversation, in this series, I want us to look at a psalm. And the reason I want us to look at a psalm, we're going to look at Psalm 13 today, is because this is a little picture of how somebody in the past was trying to put words to their desire to connect with God and their, their way of relating to God. And sometimes when we look back on an experience and we see how somebody in the past was trying to connect with God, it can help us do that, and it can help us think differently and grow in our understanding. So um, listen to what the psalmist says in Psalm 13, and just see if there's something that sticks out to you um, as I read it, and it'll be up on the screen. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. That beginning couple of questions always hit me every time. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? I remember being in one of those dark nights of the soul seasons of my life. It's happened a few times even though I'm not a, a young I'm still a young person. I'm in my mid 30s now and I look back and there's always already been a few of these seasons in my life. And I remember looking back at one of these these more intense experiences of this in my life. It was right after I finished college. Um I was, the problem with that was that I had just begun my first actual like ministry job, okay? So I'm 22 And I'm dealing with this dark night of the soul. I'm supposed to be responsible for mentoring and leading leaders that are younger than me. And you guys, I couldn't even pray. I couldn't even acknowledge. I couldn't even really say out loud what I just read and actually mean it. I was that disconnected and that frustrated and feeling this doubt and these fears and this uncertainty in my life. And it was really overwhelming. I was laying awake at night trying to deal with the questions and things that were going on in my head. And it's a long story to to talk about how God used that season in my life and helped me move through it one day at a time. But man, during that season, I clinged to psalms like this. There's others where the person writing is admitting that they feel so distant and confused, where they're wondering, where is God? Why would God allow them to be in the experience that they're experiencing now? All these questions for God. And in that time of my life, there was a question if God's existence was real at all. It's also around that time when I was experiencing that, that I got really drawn to characters in the Bible who seemed to doubt. Maybe you've noticed some of these characters. Um, Specifically in the New Testament, I think about Peter doubting as Jesus invites him to walk on water, and as soon as he does, he begins to sink. Um, I think about Thomas, who doubted so much that he got the nickname Doubting Thomas, right? He needed Jesus to prove to him that he had come back to life um, after the resurrection. There's this character in Mark 9, this, this father, this dad, who wants his son to be healed so badly that he comes to Jesus and he says this now famous line, I believe, but help my unbelief. Because he's doubting, he's unsure, he's wavering, he's uncertain. I read these stories uh, and these characters and how they interacted with God and it's actually really comforting to me because it seems like it's important that their stories were shared because it's a story and an experience that so many of us have. But there is this one passage that has bothered me for a really long time. And I don't know if it bothers anyone else, but maybe after I read it, you're welcome. It will bother you. Um, And I think that this passage is where we've gotten some of this unhealthy reality where it's not safe or it's perceived to not be safe to question or to doubt in the church. Um, I think that a a misreading of this is actually where this comes from. So it's in James 4, verses 5 through 8. James is... uh, man who is a part of the, the leadership of the early church, and he has says a lot of things very directly in, this, in this, um, this chapter and in this book. But this, right at the beginning, James 1, verse 5, all right? If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. Ouch. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all that they do. You see why this bothered me a little bit? (laughs) Stuck with me for a long time. And over the years, I've done some different studies, and uh, my friend Pastor Dee McIntosh, some of you know her, uh, she serves a church just a few miles from here, and she really helped unpack this in a way that I thought was super helpful. And it has to do with the two places that the word doubt is used here. Okay, so I'm not trying to go super like seminary nerd on you, but I want to talk about what that word means in the Greek, okay? So we have this slide. diakrino. that's what that word means. It's said twice there in James 1. It means to withdraw or desert to separate oneself in a hostile spirit or, in, or enmity in separation, okay? To withdraw or desert to separate oneself in a hostile spirit. This word is used a couple other places in the New Testament. And when it is used, it is referring to things like the archangel Gabriel uh, coming up against Satan. All right. So that enmity against Satan. Or it's used to describe the, the enmity or the strain between the Jews and the Gentiles. This hostile spirit that had been there uh, for many, many years. It's not used in any other space to describe this idea of doubting the way that we've translated it into English in most of our English translations. Do you see how this is a problem? The, the other stories that I just told you about, about Peter and Thomas and, and the father who said, help my unbelief, not the same word. It's different Greek words, and those words actually mean more what we usually mean when we say doubt or what like Webster's Dictionary would mean. A time of uncertainty or confusion, a time maybe even of fear. That's pretty different than a hostile separation, isn't it? It's way different. If you take that one verse and you say, okay, because of what James said in that one verse and the way we translate diakono into English, that means it's a sin to doubt. That's a huge misreading of what James is saying. James is talking about people who are choosing to be God's enemy. People who are saying, I can take on the God of the universe because I know better. Way different. They're going up against God with hostility. Questions and uncertainty, confusion, confusion. Going up against God in hostility, very different. Can God handle every question that we have? I think so. Can God even handle our anger when we feel angry towards him? I really think that God can handle that, I do. Will God always answer us? Nope. (laughs) And and not clearly often. The, The answer is often not clear. And will God give us the answer that we want? Yeah, no, probably not. At times he does, but sometimes it's later. It's almost never exactly how we would want it to be. So if that's where you're at, if questions and doubts are so, I mean, I would say they're so different than uh, this idea of being separated with enmity and hostility. So if that's where you're at, if you're in the enmity and hostility space, then that's one thing. But for most of us, doubt and uncertainty Is about how we bring these questions and open up our hearts and our minds to the things that are going on inside of us. And I want to suggest that it's actually a gift. If we read James correctly and we look how other people in the story of God have encountered these questions and engaged with God honestly, then I think that we will come to the conclusion that it actually can be a gift in our lives. Now, if some of you have just recently slammed up against the wall that I was talking about or in the metaphor I had, like tried to scale the wall and fell down flat on your back because it turns out in this kind of stuff, there's not a belay. (laughs) If that's been your experience, you might be like, listen, it does not feel like a gift right now. And I wouldn't blame you for feeling that. But I can sense that if that's what you just experienced, if someone would have said it's a gift to me when I was in the middle of that, when I was 22, I would have been like, listen, pastor, I'm going to talk to you after this sermon. Or I'm not going to talk to you. Take that. Right? That's how I would feel. But I really want you to hear me out on this. Hear me out about how questioning doubts and stepping into that season of life can actually help us push through and join for real. Join Jesus. Join God's work in the world in ways that we couldn't before we experienced it. This, this idea of helping people connect with God and to join what God's doing in the world. I've devoted my whole life to this, you guys. This is what I'm constantly reading about and studying. And as I've studied this time and time again, doubt and uncertainty has been shown to often, most of the time, mature the faith of those who are willing to face it and not run from it time and time again. In fact, that study I mentioned earlier by Barna, there's a a cool infographic, put that up here. If you, can, if you can see what this, you know, little thumbs up guy. Okay, so what this is saying is people that were surveyed who were people of faith at one time, they might not be anymore, obviously, if they go through a time of spiritual doubt in their life, 53% say that it made it stronger, and 28% said it didn't even change, and then 7%, 12% weaker or lost their faith altogether. This is a big deal if you ask me. We're talking about the majority of the people, it didn't change it or it made it stronger. So if someone were to ask me, am I concerned or afraid that those I pastor will doubt their faith? I would say in some ways, I'm afraid that some of them will not doubt and question when they need to. Because if this is true, it's a big deal. What I mean is, is if the alternative is to be disconnected from God, keeping God at arm's length because you're afraid of going there with the questions because you don't know what's going to be there when you open door number one or door number three. I get that I get that it's scary, but I'm concerned that we don't do that work when we have to Because of the reality of how it strengthens our faith I don't want people to keep God at arm's length I understand that that happens at times in our life. And I think God loves us and has grace for that reality But I think that that is the worst case scenario a long-term keeping God at arm's length and being disconnected that that's the worst case scenario not doubt Not questions. God can handle. If we're going to join God, then we must press into the questions and not run from them. As a pastor, not only do I feel horrible that people have communicated that that doubt is a sin, which I apologize for on behalf of people like me who've studied what I've studied. I'm sorry about that misrepresentation. I'm sure they meant well. But if you have felt that before, it's heartbreaking to me that that would be someone's experience because i really believe that god would rather have you and all your cynicism and your questions and your doubts and your fears throwing those things at him he'd rather have that than you holding him at a distance and maybe being content in some sort of way but you're actually disconnected and god loves you no matter what trust me he loves the disconnected ones of you he loves the doubting cynics and everything in between He loves those who are passionately pursuing him and feeling so close to him. But God invites us into these questions, I think. God invites us to press into these doubts. So if you're hitting this wall, okay, if that metaphor makes sense to you and you feel like you're coming into this experience where you're hitting this wall spiritually and it doesn't feel like the the simple wall that you used to climb easily like in the metaphor, then there's really only one true option if you're hoping that it could result in maturity in your life. And it's not to climb up it. It's not to go around it. It's not to go under it. It's to go through it. There's this book called The Critical Journey. Maybe some of you have read it uh, by this woman, Janet Hagberg, and a guy, Robert Gulick. Uh, It's actually pretty old, um, but it is really helpful. I highly recommend it. It talks about how faith is more cyclical than it is linear, does that make sense? So you go through faith cycles, not so much that's a beginning line and an end line, and it's just like a straight line. It's really more like a cycle, and we go through different stages, and I'm not going to get into all that today. But they talk about this idea of a wall in our faith, and, and coming up against a wall like this, And uh, when they talk about this, and this gives some really great language, that's why I highly recommend it, it describes an experience that so many of us have had. And even though all of us experience our faith differently, there's a lot of language in here to talk about where we're at. And they talk about that concept of a wall, and even though it's really difficult and really challenging, they talk about how important it is. To the point where they devote an entire uh, chapter of this book to the idea of this wall, that we hit spiritually. They say it's super important. I'm going to read uh, just a little bit of what they say about the wall. The process of meeting the wall requires going through the wall, not underneath it, over it, around it, or blasting it. We must go through it brick by brick, feeling and healing each element of our wills as we surrender to God. So when we get to the other side of the wall, they would talk about how the hope is from this side of the wall to this side of the wall. What we've done is we've self-actualized is one of the words that they use. This idea of understanding ourself and where we're at. Another phrase I was talking to my sister-in-law about it. We were talking about how we need to self-author our faith. We need to become our own authors and our own understanding of what God might be doing or might not be doing in our lives. But let me tell you something. This is what I notice. In my own life and in the lives of so many of us as we hit this wall, okay? I watch how tempting it is to just straight up turn around and run away from the wall and just ignore it. To just have nothing to do with it. To busy ourselves with other things so we don't have to think about it. And so that's when we get like, we watch all of Stranger Things in like two days. And then, that's a TV show if some people didn't know. And uh, Or we just busy ourselves with work. Work, 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 work. Or, you know... We're really just investing in our kids, and that means we need to research in depth all of the after-school programs this summer starting now. And it's like, do we really need to do that, or are we actually trying to avoid the reality that we have come against this spiritual wall in our lives? I also watch sometimes when people hit this wall, they just like sit on the ground at the foot of the wall and start pouting because it's really too hard. And I don't blame people for that either. I have been that person sitting at the foot of the wall pouting. I really have. I see other times we uh, think that this wall is so annoying and so difficult that we try to blast it like they said. Like, oh, let me figure out, is there some sort of special trick that can blast the wall so I don't have to do the hard work and the patience of going through it because we're so addicted to instant gratification and that's totally like Mark Zuckerberg's fault or Google or somebody's fault, not our fault. But we just wanna hurry up the process. We don't wanna deal with the, the frustration of the patience of the process to do this brick by brick. And then there's one final thing that I see all the time. Oftentimes when we hit the wall spiritually, we start to ask questions. And that means we're asking questions about maybe what other leaders or teachers or others in our life have said. So we're asking questions and we're saying, well, maybe they weren't right. And so then we go and we find other leaders and sages and 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 smart people. And instead of thinking for ourselves about what we heard, we just jump into their camp and think, oh, everything that they say is right all the time. That's just another way of avoiding doing the work of going through the wall yourself. There is something we can learn from lots of people. But whenever we find ourselves saying, oh, man, I guess I have to think exactly what this person thinks, this person thinks, what Pastor Steph thinks, we have stopped doing the work of going brick by brick through the wall. The reality is this brick by brick thing, just like anything else that you're doing consistently, it builds strength in us, and I think that that's how doubt and uncertainty can lead to maturity in our lives. That's how I think it can be a gift. Let me get just a little bit more specific for you if you're still on the don't tell me it's a gift because I'm mad at you thing. I think that it's obviously an uncomfortable season of life when we go through this. But the gift that we get from that is humility. Realizing we are not God. No one's asking us to be God. No one's asking us to understand everything that God understands. And maybe, just maybe, we get to a spot where that humility leads us to a place where we think, I do not want to believe in a God that I can completely understand. What kind of God is that anyway? I'll always have questions. I think that going through the wall is really hard work like it would be to excavate and discover something that's behind each brick. And I think that it can spark a sense of awe and wonder and curiosity, and it gives us a gift of curiosity in our lives. We become people who are more curious and interested, who ask really good questions, even if they don't have answers. We begin to ask questions we would never ask if we didn't try to go through the wall. And as we discover new things along the way, I think sometimes people say their mind is blown. Has anybody ever said that? Maybe it's just like a millennial thing, like, oh, my mind was blown. We could choose to see that as interesting, as something that's exciting, and not just scary and daunting, which it is. I get that it's scary and daunting too. But that's our minds and our hearts actually growing and expanding. We're becoming more of who God created us to be when that happens. And then finally, I think that going through the wall requires a lot of patience, as you can imagine. It takes a lot of time. But I think that as we choose to be intentional to go through it in our lives, it can inspire a different type of motivation in our hearts. A motivation that's not about duty. It's not about guilt. It's not about I have to have a quiet time or something like that. It's about an actual pursuit of wonder and wanting to know more. And wanting to say, even if I don't get these answers, I want to continually ask better questions in my life. I've seen this happen in people's lives time and time again. I've seen them grow in maturity because they're willing to press into their questions and doubts and not run from them. They're willing to go brick by brick through the wall to recognize they don't have to do that alone. There's other people with them. And the people around them who've done that process already, they cheer them on. People who've been through the wall. Some of you have been through one or two in your life, maybe more. You cheer the people on who are doing that work, don't you? And I think I know why we get excited for those people. Let me put this kind of kind of quirky quote up here on the screen. This guy named Oliver Wendell Holmes. He's a a poet and a doctor back in the 1800s, and he said this: "I would not give a fig." I don't even know who has figs, but I would not give a fig for the simplicity on this side of complexity. But I would give my life for the simplicity on the other side of complexity. So maybe people were into figs in the 1800s. I'm not really sure. But think about this for a second. Think about what he's saying. I think he's suggesting that sometimes in order to truly get to the core, to simplify, we have to complexify in order to simplify. We have to allow ourselves to face the complexities if we want to get to what he would describe as the far side of complexity. Think about this for a minute. What if the answer was is that we don't need all the answers, but we need to get to the far side of complexity where there's awe and wonder and anticipation and a sense of being okay with the complexity? We can't just flip a switch and be okay with it, but this process of working through the complexity can get us to a place where we have peace with the complexity. Oftentimes, I think what we're looking for is relatively simple. You just have to get to the far side of complexity to see it. And when you get to that far side of complexity, it doesn't mean the complexity goes away. It just means you can coexist with that complexity in a way that makes more sense in your life. But getting there, getting to the far side of complexity is not easy. And I wouldn't suggest doing it by yourself. I'd suggest allowing people to come through that process with you. Let me just give you one more metaphor in case that's not totally making sense. Last week I was talking about how uh, there's interference with our relationship with God and we reach out for God and we don't feel like God's there. It's kind of like when I take my glasses off, okay? I'm totally blind. I'm nearsighted, astigmatism, all the things, okay? And I take these glasses off and I can't see anything. And so the problem is, is sometimes I take them off for different reasons and I set them down in a spot and I forget where I set them down. Could someone tell me that happens to them. Okay, good. Not just me. Thanks, Mom. So I take the glasses off and I can't find them because they're not where I put them last. And I was talking about how that, what well, it feels like sometimes when we reach out for God where we used to connect with God and then it feels like God's not there. But it doesn't mean that God's not there. It just means that it's not just like my glasses. They're there. They're near. I just can't figure out where they are. Well, the worst thing is when I take these off and I set them down on a counter that's full of a bunch of other stuff, all right? So true confessions about the house JD and I live in, sometimes there's counters full of a bunch of random stuff, all right? And if I set them down there, or worse, this is the worst thing, when I set them down on our duvet cover, we've got this IKEA duvet cover, it's super busy, it's got all these little patterns on it, it's really nice, and when you set the glasses down on it, I can't see them at all. Because they blend into the complex pattern that's all over this bedspread. The complexity is too much for me to see anything, much less the glasses that I'm looking for. Do you see what I mean? Like when I set these down on a crowded counter, I have to deal with all the complexity as I'm feeling my way around, like what is this, what is this, and then I finally find them. But sometimes it takes a long time and sometimes I need help. Sometimes I straight up have to ask JD usually or somebody, can you help me find my glasses because I cannot see them? And almost every time that I completely fail at finding them, it's because I set them down in a spot where there's a ton of other stuff. And in our lives, there's tons of stuff coming at us all the time. That's what makes our life so complex. In my opinion, life is only getting more complex as we go in this time of history that we're living in. And the reality is is that to get to the far side of that complexity, it's more and more challenging. But it would be so silly, wouldn't it, if I just walked away and thought, I guess my glasses aren't here. No, of course they're there. It's just hard to find them. It's a lot of work. What if God is inviting us to keep searching and to do the hard work of searching and finding in the midst of the complexity so that maybe we can find the peace that we desire to have, even if the complexity is still there? I think it's hard work. Last week I quoted Dallas Willard who says grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. That means that effort is something God invites us to do, not to earn his love, not to earn his approval or something like that, but because God wants to be pursued by us. God invites us to pursue him, not out of duty or out of guilt or to earn something, but because God has given us what it takes to make it through these times when we need this effort. So if you're facing this wall right now in your life, Or if you do in the future, I want to encourage you, don't give up. Don't give up. You are not alone. You might look around as we're sitting here talking in in the middle of a sermon series or in an equipping class or in your missional community, and you might think, I am the only one that's doubting. I'm the only one that's asking these questions. And I just want you to know that's not true. I know because I hear from a lot of you, and I know that you're not the only one. The truth is, is that you aren't. It's normal. And people go through these different faith stages at different times. So, yeah, everybody around you is not in the same place. That would be weird anyway. But I do want to say that we have to also be careful of something else. And that is the temptation to think that the other people around us who are not in a time of questioning are missing something. Like, oh man, I'm asking the real questions. These people are behind in some sort of really tragic way. And it's, you know, you start to feel this weird, like, pity for them. That doesn't mean, like, the fact that you're asking good questions doesn't mean you're, like, ahead of somebody else in some sort of race. It's cyclical, like we were talking about. It's not a competition, you guys. There isn't, like, higher forms of spirituality. There's just deeper and deeper for you and you and you, and you're all different. And so I just want us to really think about this. Spiritual elitism is not a healthy response to the awakening that you're experiencing as you go deeper in your questions. I'm going to say that again because I think it's important. Spiritual elitism is not a healthy response to the awakening that you're experiencing as you go deeper in your questions and in your curiosity. We are in this together, you guys. Maturity, maturity, true maturity means that we stay in the room with each other. We believe on behalf of those who are struggling to believe. I think that is, is something that we see in God's story, is that we can believe on behalf of those who need us to help their unbelief. We can encourage people who seem stagnant to ask, ask good questions. That's fine. But more than anything, we have to accept that we are people who are constantly changing. And if we really love each other, we have to love each other for where we're at, but also love each other enough that we hope that everyone would not stay there. We would constantly be changing and growing. The band can come up. We're going to take communion like we do every week. And as they come up, I, I want to say something that, is a personal belief of mine. I want you all to feel comfortable to choose whatever you want to do. But I think that people should continue to participate in communion if they're in a season of doubt or uncertainty or in a space of seeking. Not every theologian would agree with me on that, but I think it's important. I think it's how we tangibly practice the second half of that psalm that we read today. At the very end, verse 5, But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. Sometimes that's not a fact, that's a prayer. That's a hope. God, I want to trust in your unfailing love. God, my heart wants to rejoice in your salvation. And I think when we come time and time again and say, I want to do this, this is where I'm pursuing you, God, we come to this table and we're able to come back to Jesus time and time again. If Jesus is the cornerstone of our life, is the foundation on which we're building everything else, then if we're taking things apart brick by brick and everything seems gone, but nothing's left but the cornerstone and that is Jesus in our lives, that's a good spot to start rebuilding. And so I think when we celebrate the table together, when we come to this table together, we're saying, I'm coming back to Jesus and saying, I might not know anything else. I don't understand everything about this guy or what this means, but I'm coming back. I'm coming back. My heart might not be in it, but I'm going to get my butt out of the seat and I'm going to walk up as an act of searching and seeking in my life. And I want to encourage you that all that hard work can lead to a more vibrant and curious and engaged faith than you have ever had in your life. And I know that because I've experienced it. When you press into the far side of complexity, I believe that Jesus is with you. I believe that Jesus is right there next to you, digging with you brick by brick. And you might say, I don't believe that at all. That's fine. I'll believe it for you there's a bunch of other people here who will believe it for you as well but if this is you do not do it alone we are in this together don't be afraid to say that you have these questions so this morning i invite us all to come and at the table this morning bring with you your doubts and your questions because they're a part of you right now and we'll take all of you and jesus will take all of you this is the body of jesus broken for us and his blood that was shed for us We're going to form two lines, and you just take the bread, dip it into the cup, and then there'll be people here on on both sides who are willing to pray for you. Please let us do that as we uh, celebrate communion together and go into this time of worship.